favorite. You know, my favorite is the Bible. My favorite is whatever I'm looking at right now. But there is there are some that you go back to over and over, and and the next passage is one that honestly I I've tried to preach it a number of times. I feel like I've never been able to do it justice. It's a beautiful thing what Jesus says there, but uh, we'll set up for it this morning with John 7, verse 25 through 36, and you'll have to come back tonight to hear the good stuff, alright? Uh, we save that for later. Alright, stand with me. Let's look at John 7, beginning in verse 25, reading down through verse 36. These are the words of God. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? The low he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. Lord God, as we open your word together, I pray that we would not look past a passage like this that um, seems strange and mysterious to us, but that we would believe your word and that we would receive it gladly and that we would uh, look to understand what is what you're saying here and what is taking place in this passage and what it means to us and what what we should do because of it. I pray that we would have all these things in our mind, that our mind would be ready to hear your word, that we would be attentive to it, that you would remove distractions from us, and that we would actively fight against those distractions in order to listen to the word of God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. To borrow an insult, Hostility between the Jews and Jesus in this passage is a case of too many ironies in the fire. John draws out those ironies in his telling of the story. Now, irony is a special kind of satire um, where you say the opposite, you know, of what you mean. So if it's really cold and rainy and miserable outside, you say, nice day, huh? All right, that's irony. Sarcasm, some would call it as well, but that's what we're talking about here. And what John does here is he points out 
several ironic things that the Jews say about Jesus. It's ironic. When you look at it, you see that it's ironic because you're seeing what they're saying and you know that the opposite is true. Or in some way, there's some... Um, I don't know what the word, but I come out of the lost for words here. I haven't been, it's not like I haven't been talking for two weeks, and now all of a sudden I don't know what to say. Uh, but it, it's, it's so different from what they say. In reality, it's very different than what they say, all right? Now, John sets the table by telling us that Jesus' brothers challenged him to show himself openly in Jerusalem. At the beginning of the chapter, in verses 3 and 4, they said, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. So they're challenging Jesus to show himself openly to the world. And of course, Jesus doesn't go. He doesn't take the challenge. He doesn't, if you will, take the dare from his brothers. Whatever the brothers are angling for right here, he doesn't take the bait. Jesus says in verse 6, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Jesus made it clear that he did what the Father told him to do. Nothing more, nothing less. So he did not respond to dares or challenges to his authority, he did not react. He acted, and he acted on the basis of what God was directing him to do. He did the Father's will, and he makes that clear, abundantly clear, throughout the Gospels, but especially in the Gospel of John. Now, this is the mystery of the Trinity, the glory of the Son's submission to his Father. He did nothing of himself, but what he saw the Father do, that is what he did as well. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus reminds us of this truth again in our text, in verse 29, what we just read. But I know him, he said, for I am of him. And he hath sent me. Jesus didn't act autonomously. He did not act independently. By the way, that should be a reminder to us, if we're to be like Christ, that we're not to live our lives as autonomous agents. Autonomy being no authority over me. Nothing telling me what to do. I do what I do. And no one can tell me different. Jesus himself did not live that way. Did not live as a law to himself. He always did his father's will. He made it abundantly clear in scripture. He made it abundantly clear that he was under the authority of his father. So, Jesus is not freelancing. He came to fulfill his father's will. That's the key point. And that is what causes the problem in John chapter 7. Remember what Jesus told the religious authorities in John 5 and verse 43. Jesus said, I am come to in my Father's name, he said, 
and ye receive me not. See, this is the point. Their problem with Jesus, if Jesus had been, lived like an autonomous male, I did it my way, like we talked about in Sunday school. All right? The world would have embraced him. They would have loved him. He would have been just like them. But Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name, and he received me not. In fact, it is because he came in his Father's name that the world rejected him. Because the world cannot stand, cannot tolerate submission to God. Cannot stomach the sight, the evidence of a man who is surrendered to the Lord. This is vile and disgusting to a world in rebellion against him. And that's why Jesus is rejected. Because he lives according to God's will. He said, I have come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. And then he added this. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. Now that's the story of human history. Right there. That's the story of every dictator, every tyrant, every emperor, every pharaoh in the history of mankind. Every one of them came in their own name and as a result gained a massive following. Because we are naturally drawn to that. Jesus said, that's why you won't receive me. Now, in saying this, Jesus identified the true cause of man's rebellion. We hate anything that looks like submission to God. We hate it. <coughs> Pardon me, that's why in our world, marriage is less and less popular and adultery is more and more popular. That's why in our world, Religion is less and less popular, and spirituality is more and more popular. Right. Yeah. Because with all of its faults and flaws, religion still looks a lot like submission to God. Mm -hmm. But spirituality, I can freelance. Mm -hmm. I can I can I can worship the thoughts in my own head. We value personal autonomy. We value independence. We like to do our own thing, even when we come to religion. We want to come on our own terms and not surrender to God. We interpret scripture so that it sanctions the kind of lifestyle we want to live. It reminds me of Ambrose Bierce's tongue-in-cheek definition of a Christian. He said, Christian, noun. One who believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. One who follows the teachings of Christ insofar as they are not inconsistent with the life of sin. Satan, Satan loves the kind of religion that reduces Jesus to window dressing on an otherwise <coughs> self-absorbed life. He loves the kind of religion that wears Jesus like a label on its clothes. 
you know, you got the sploosh. You got uh, whatever other stuff, the little alligator. I'm trying to think of those little logos that you can wear, right? So that you can advertise, pay, pay a company to advertise their product. Then you got the cross, right? You wear the little cross gear. We could, we could make like our own clothing brand, cross gear. And then you can wear it. See, I just came up with it. Look at that. I'm an entrepreneur, right here. We'll make our shirts, we'll call them cross gear, we'll make them really expensive and then people will buy them, right? And Satan loves that kind of religion. Religion that is show, religion that is window dressing. Meanwhile, I do my own thing, I live my own way. I do what I wanna do. But Jesus is not fine with that. He never has been, he never will be, he never will be. Jesus keeps reminding people who he really is, and they keep rejecting him. The more he insists, the more they reject him. But Jesus never softens the message, never comes to terms with them. He doesn't set up a compromise. <clears throat> he does not attempt to make his message palatable to the world. He just goes on telling them the truth, and the more he does, the more they rise up against him. And that's what we see, in fact, in the Gospel of John, that the, the more we advance into the Gospel, the more advanced man's rebellion and resistance and hatred and animosity becomes towards Jesus. How does John answer this rage against the Lord and against his anointed? Well, go back to Psalm 2 and you'll see. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. See, this is the beauty. And this is what Christians, I think, need to keep in mind and often don't. But that would help us not to be paralyzed with fear in the face of a hostile world. The heathen rage, the people imagine a vain thing, the kings of the earth did resolve that they will throw off his authority, and God is not fretting. He is not worried. He's not holding emergency conferences to decide what to do with this rebellion and this uprising. He laughs. He sits in heaven, and he laughs. And in the last day, in the book of Revelation, he calls on men, Bring, bring your best, gather your troops, throw at me everything that you have. And we, you know, I mean, look, if Armageddon were tomorrow, we have such advanced technology and advanced weaponry. We think in our minds, surely we could throw God off now, right? And God laughs. It's like when I was a kid, we used to, you know, you know I went to AC school and we, we sat in a cubicle um, for a while during the day and it was not my favorite thing to do. Boys are typically not into that, sitting there in the cubicle. So what I did was I learned how to make paper footballs. We made them out of like paper and we'd fold them in triangles and a couple of people showed me and then I had like a whole box full of them and I would flick them. Um, through the goalposts, right? And I would play football with them, right? And that's what God does. 
flicks them. Right? He laughs, and then he flicks them. And they're done. Just like that. And that's why I say this is the irony of what we're pointing out. Because here we see the Jews rising up against Jesus in hostility. Right? They are his adversaries. And we, John invites us to look at it, to have a bird's eye view of it. To look at it like from overhead and see how this is. And see that, yeah, it's not working this way. I mean, you can rage, and you can imagine a vain thing, but it's not going to work out for you. Now, as I review the exchange in our text between Jesus and the Jews, I notice four main ironies. And I notice that each irony contains other ironies. Think of it like a Russian doll of delicious ironies here, all right? But my reason for pointing out the irony is not for your entertainment. The real irony here is that men invent reasons to reject the Lord when they, in fact, are the ones who are rejected of the Lord. And see, that's the, that's the real issue. You can reject him and reject him and reject him, and you can wear yourself out rejecting him, but in the last day, what will count is when he rejects you. <clears throat> so I would plead with you to listen carefully to the message as it's preached. Let's begin with the first irony. Because the people said in verse 26, But lo, he speaketh boldly. But lo, he speaketh boldly. Do you agree with me? I, I think you agree with me. That there's a hint of irony in the way John says this. But lo, he speaketh boldly. Like the people are shocked that he speaks boldly. Now, we should not be shocked because we have seen the glory of Jesus Christ as the glory of God the Father himself. So why would we be shocked that Jesus speaks boldly? He is God. It's not like he's going to be intimidated by men and by their scowling faces. But lo, he speaketh boldly. Remember the conversation between Jesus and his brothers at the beginning of the chapter. I pointed out to you earlier. They challenged Jesus to take a show on the road to Jerusalem. Don't keep it a secret anymore, they said. They're prodding him. But Jesus waited until God sent him. Now John here is setting the table for, for us for this passage. Jesus didn't wait because he was afraid, because he was timid, because he wasn't ready to face the animosity and the hostility of men. He wasn't a cold, shrinking, timid soul cowering from those frightening Pharisees. When it came time, he taught openly he taught in the temple on their home turf. He taught. Apparently, his preaching was quite bold because it caught the attention of the Jerusalemites, the residents of Jerusalem. Now keep in mind that in John 7, there are three factions at work against Jesus. The religious authorities are one. The residents of Jerusalem, or I'll call them Jerusalemites, or another, and the outsiders, those who came, Jews who came to Jerusalem 
from outside, mainly from Galilee. Now the Galileans, in verse 20, if you look there, were outraged because Jesus claimed that they had a death wish out for him. Why do you seek to kill me, he said. And they said, thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? So there's already this tension in the story. Jesus is saying, you're going about to kill me. They're saying, what is he talking about? He's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's lost his mind. He has a devil. No one goes about to kill him. Now, I believe that those who said that in verse 20 were the Galileans, those from outside of Jerusalem who had come in for the feast. All right. So they're here and they've not heard anything about this. The religious authorities stood by and said nothing. They didn't, they didn't confirm or deny that there was a death warrant out for Jesus. But the native Jerusalemites knew that the religious leaders had it in for Jesus, which is why in verse 25, then said some of them of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? They had heard the rumors, and the rumors were high about Jesus. <clears throat> we can unfold a few bonus ironies in the bold way that Jesus preached, because here's the thing. Jesus knows that they want to kill him, and he preaches bold anyway. So be, Jesus spoke boldly in the face of those who sought to kill him. That's an irony. Because their threats against him were meant to silence him. And Jesus didn't go find a free speech zone in a corner, a remote corner of the city. He went right to the temple and preached there where they could hear him and find him. And secondly, the second of the uh, kind of sub-ironies here is that Jesus had just pointed out that they were seeking to kill him in verse 19. The religious leaders let the Galileans think that there was no threat against Jesus, but the Jerusalemites knew better. And that's why they're shocked, because they know that there's a death wish for Jesus, right? How can he be preaching boldly? Is he not afraid, they're saying? I think that there's an acknowledgement here on the part of the Jerusalemites that they would be afraid if there was that kind of death wish out for them, if there was that kind of plot against their lives. But Jesus does not cower. He does not shrink. They see Jesus teaching boldly. And they want to know what in the world is going on. Did the religious authorities examine Jesus and discover that he is the Messiah? And so now they're letting him go? That's what they asked here in the passage. They want to know. Did, did something happen we didn't hear about? They've been hunting for his life. They've been plotting against him. He's speaking boldly. Nobody says anything. Did they decide that he's the Messiah after all? And that leads to a third irony. These Jerusalemites are a little sarcastic towards their leaders. Notice what they say next. It is, in fact, the if you can keep track of these, the next main irony here, number two. Howbeit, we know this man. 
The word howbeit is an emphatic contrast, a contrast between themselves and the religious authorities who they think must have decided that Jesus is the Messiah. They say, howbeit, we know this man whence he is. <clears throat> They're very quick to deny that Jesus could be the Messiah, and they deny it because they know where Jesus came from. For some reason, they didn't think that they would know where the Messiah came from. There was some, you know, there are a lot of, and we see the same thing today. You know, there are a lot of reasons why. Well, let's, let's take an example. Why don't the LDS drink coffee? You hear all kinds of really bizarre reasons given for this. And if you talk to 10 different Mormons, you're probably going to get 10 different versions of the reason why. All right, so it's kind of the same thing that a lot of this, a lot of people are not like deeply studied on these issues, so they come to these conclusions. And, and so that's what you see here. They had decided that the Messiah would come from nowhere. We wouldn't know where it came from, they had decided. By the way, you see their contempt for Jesus, by the way, they refer to him, they call him, in fact, they call him this man, it, it, the, the, the Greek there is this, like this, like they can't say what he is, this disgust, which they show repeatedly in the Gospel of John. So we can see also in this second, second major irony, you can see three sub-ironies, all right? First of all, they thought they knew where Jesus came from, but they were wrong. They were wrong. Because they think he's from Nazareth, and we all know that he's from Bethlehem. And if it, they had known that he was from Bethlehem, do you think maybe they would have stopped and said, wait a minute, Bethlehem? Like David's Bethlehem? You think they would have thought that? But no, they think he's from. So they say, we, we know where he comes from. But they're wrong about where he came from. That's the first irony. They're mistaken about his origins. Later they say, that they don't know where Jesus came from. That's the second sub-irony under this one. When Jesus heals the man born blind in John chapter 9, we get this exchange between the blind man and the religious leaders. Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, but as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. Oh, wait, wait. Earlier in John 7, you rejected him because you knew where he was from, right? And now you reject him because you don't know where he's from. Isn't that funny how arbitrary the world can be? How constantly they move the goalposts, right? Yes. Constantly moving it. Right. Well, you know, if God would just write in the sky and show us that he's God in the sky, right? And then you point out that the heavens declare the glory of God and they say, well, that's not really meaningful anyway. Yeah, okay. Just so we're clear that the point is to reject him for any reason or no reason at all, right? That's what Jesus said. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. 
And the irony continues in John chapter 9 when the blind man called their bluff. The blind man. In John 9 verse 30, the man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing, he said. Somehow the argument about not knowing the Messiah's origins seems like a matter of convenience here. When it suits their case, they know where Jesus came from. When it doesn't, we have no idea who this guy is or where he came from. This this fellow, this person. The third irony, though, is the most important in this one. Jesus points out that though they knew him, they don't really know him at all. They might know where he came from, but they don't know where he came from. And this is where Jesus speaks up. In fact, he cried out. He made a public announcement in verse 28. You're right. You know me, and you know whence I am. But let me add to that. I am not come of myself. Now there it is, again, Jesus constantly deferring to the Father. But, and there he uses another emphatic contrast, but he that sent me is true, notice, whom ye know not, he said. Now that is a hard statement. Jesus says two things here. First, he says that God sent me. That would be highly offensive to the Jews. In fact, Jesus uses the word true. He that sent me is true. True in this case means genuine. As in God, the God who sent him is the genuine God and God genuinely sent him. God really sent him. He that sent me is the only real sender of anyone. So you think you know me, he says, but you really don't because you don't believe that God sent me. That's the point here, what Jesus is saying. You think you know me, but you don't, think, you don't believe God sent me, so that would mean you don't, in fact, know me at all. You don't believe that I am God's authorized agent in this world. But then, having said that, Jesus slams the door shut on them. They think they know him, but not only do they not know him, they don't know God either. That's what he says. Now, <clears throat> when Jesus said the first part of that, that God had sent him, that might have been tolerable to the Jews. Maybe they were used to it by this time. But the second statement, they can't tolerate that. If a Jew in that day prided himself on anything, it was in knowing God. They believed 
that God made himself known particularly to the Jews, especially to the Jews, by means of the law. And Jesus says, if you don't know me, then you don't know the Father. If they don't recognize him, in other words, as the Messiah, it's because they don't really know the law. And that means they don't really know the Father. Now, you know, this is not really hard for us to understand because the Jews totally missed it on the law. They misunderstood its purpose. They misunderstood uh, its application. They obsessed about minor details of the law and created complex, complex rules for following every law. They were like the proverbial, the guy who can't see the forest for all the trees, you know, because all they could see were trees everywhere. And that was the problem. So they don't know the law. And that's what Jesus is pointing out because the end of the law is Jesus. Jesus is what the law points to. He is the fulfillment of the law, the perfection of the law. So Jesus is pointing this out to them here. Jesus says, if you don't know me, you don't know my father, and you don't know me because you don't know that he sent me. If they had known the father, they would not have rejected the son. And then to pile on to that, Jesus tells them that he does know the father in contrast to them. Here's why. Because I am from him and he has sent me. He uses in that phrase, he uses the emphatic I, I, he says, know him. He emphasizes that he himself knows him. He uses the perfect tense for know. I have known him and I know him now for all time. It is in fact a settled fact that Jesus knows him. He uses a double marker of cause or reason, sort of like a because because. Here's why. Because I am from him and he has sent me. Jesus means to set himself up as the litmus test for knowing God. Okay, so this is, this is important for you to grasp here. You cannot know God except by means of Jesus Christ. You cannot know him apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot, you will not know him apart from Christ. The way for you to know God is by knowing Jesus Christ. And Jesus is declaring that here in this passage. You can pretend to know God, but Jesus says, if you don't believe in me, then you don't know him. And that's important because there may be someone in this room who says, well, you know, I believe in God and all. I, I always think we're not headed in a good direction when someone starts out that way. Well, you know, I believe in God and all, they say. No, no, no. It cannot be that you must receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must receive the work that he did on the cross, bearing your sin, suffering and bleeding and dying the death that you should have died. You must receive that as being for yourself. Receive that by faith as God's gift to you so that you can be redeemed, 
so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be reconciled to God the Father. Now that's what it means to receive Christ as your Savior, to come to Him as a wicked sinner, and to say, I have no hope except that you, Jesus Christ, have died for me in my place, carried my sin, carried the wrath for it, and satisfied God the Father in his demands for justice. And Lord Jesus, if you will not be my Savior, then I have no hope. That's what it means. And apart from that, you cannot come to God the Father. You cannot know him. You can know about him, but you cannot be in a relationship with him because you are dead in trespasses and sins. Those who recognize who he is really do know God. Those who cannot discern who he is cannot possibly know God. And as Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. There's a third main irony in this passage. And many of the people believed on him. Okay, now get this. This is, this is beautiful. It's delicious, like I said. Because the Jews are fighting against him, and they're denying him, and they're despising him. And in that environment, the Bible says many believed on him. Many of the people believed on him. It's an irony because of the intense opposition Jesus faced. <coughs> Pardon me, remember before Jesus showed himself at this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, no man dared to speak openly in support of him. For fear of the Jews. Notice that in verse 13 of John 7. But now in the face of this growing and open hatred of Jesus. There were those who believed. Before when it was subversive. When there was this rumor of a plot against Jesus. No one dared to speak up for him. But now... That the hostility is out in the open. Now people begin to believe. Isn't that ironic? <clears throat> the Jerusalemites did not misunderstand what Jesus was saying, which is why they tried to arrest him. Now, I don't know how they went about trying to arrest him, and I don't know how Jesus escaped it. The Bible just tells us that that happened, and I, I know that he did. Though I don't know how he escaped, I do know why he escaped. Because verse 30 tells us his hour was not yet come. The same as we saw earlier in verse 8. Jesus did nothing of himself. His life was in no danger until the time appointed of his father. And Jesus lived his life every day that way. As if his life was never in any danger, not a bit, until the time appointed. Of the Father. By the way, should we not also live that way mm -hmm. ourselves? 
Yet in the face of this kind of hostility, there were those who believed on him. And that's how it always is. Jesus said, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. And whenever sinful men are confronted with the revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ, this will always be the result. That there will be those who rise up in anger and hatred, and there will be those who believe. Those who believed were probably not all that solid in their faith. I mean, you know, the crowds really fluctuate for Jesus. I mean, he's got on the on the um, the mount, he's got what twenty thousand people he feeds with five loaves and two fish, right? Um, and then it's down to just as twelve, right? And then there are many who believe again, right? And then it's back down to his 12. And then there are 70 he sends out. And then it's back down to his 12. Right? Uh, and it just really fluctuates. Really up and down. And uh, not a typical model for church growth. Let's just say it that way. <clears throat> um, but that being said, uh, Jesus had in fact rebuked those who believed only on the basis of his miracles. In John chapter 4, then said Jesus unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. This is not a mark of, uh, like God, Christ is not commending people for this. And besides that, what the people said makes perfect sense. From what I've read, there was an expectation that the Messiah would be a great miracle worker. <clears throat> Conventional wisdom said that he would be the second coming of Moses and would show this by miracles. And so those who weren't blinded by their prejudices recognized that if another person were the Messiah, he probably wouldn't do more miracles than what Jesus did. So they decided there, and this is kind of a worldly compromise, they decided that he might not be the Messiah, but he's at least as great as the Messiah. And so on that basis, they believe. Now, let me just point this out to you, that this is not a safe way to believe in Jesus. All right? There are many people who will say, well, you know, I don't know if Jesus is the only Savior or not, but it, it sure can't hurt to believe on him as a Savior. Right? The difference between a Savior and the Savior is the difference between heaven and hell. Mm -hmm. If you accept Jesus as a Savior, like one among many, one among several, your soul is in danger of hellfire. Yes. Because Jesus is the only Savior, the only Savior, the only one. Who has died to pay for your sin. Whose blood can cleanse you from your sin. The only one. And you must look to him and only him. See, that's the thing. Is that we like to keep our options open. Right? If this one doesn't work. Right? If I invest, you know, in apple and then apple tanks, I want to have my eggs in other baskets. Right? But not so with Jesus. You commit your life, your eternity to him, or you have not received him. 
So <clears throat> that brings us then to the fourth irony in the passage. They ask this question, will he go unto this first among the Gentiles? I need to explain this one, so I want you to hang with me for a moment. Because at this point, that the Pharisees and Sadducees stepped in, when many began to believe in Jesus, then the religious authorities began to move. You know, when Jesus taught boldly in the temple, they stood silently by. Their silence, in fact, gives a great contrast to the boldness of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> At his trial, by the way, Jesus reminded them that he did not preach what he did or do what he did in a corner. They held their tongues when Jesus preached boldly. They held their tongues when the people said Jesus had a devil. Remember, Jesus said, why go ye about to kill me? And the Pharisees and the religious authorities said nothing. They didn't correct it. They didn't deny it. They didn't confirm it. They just let the people deny it. But when someone moved towards faith in Jesus, then they stepped in. Now, again, I step away from my message and remind you that is this not our experience as well? There was a lady one time contacted us, uh, my wife and I, and uh, she contacted, contacted us through the church website. She had been LDS. She had been searching for a long time. She had left the LDS church, though her family had not. She had been searching. She came across our website. She saw a lot of the material that we have on there, and she said, I want to know more. And so she came, met with us. She said, I haven't gone to church in two years, except for, you know, missionary send-offs and, and baby dedications, and that's been it. She said, and my family really doesn't care that I don't go to church at all. They all go, my husband and all, the, all my kids go to church, but I don't. She said, I've been looking, I've been searching. Will you please show me the gospel from the Bible? And I did. And then she said, can I come back and talk to you? And I said, yeah. The next time she came, she said, this is crazy. She said, nobody cared that I didn't go to church. But when I came to meet with you from that time forward, my family has gone crazy. They won't leave me alone. Then she came to church and they went even crazier. Now this is what happens. When you commit your life to Christ, nobody cares. You can live the most self-destructive life ever. Nobody cares, right? But then you commit your life to Jesus Christ and now you are public enemy number one. Yeah. I'm guessing that the religious authorities called an unofficial meeting of the Sanhedrin and swore out a warrant for Christ's arrest. Then, they sent out the temple guard, a sort of temple police force, to arrest Jesus. Now, a few verses earlier, the Jerusalemites attempted to arrest him, but they only did it as a mob. Now there was an official warrant out for Jesus, an organized effort to detain him. In response, look at verse 33. 
Because there Jesus seems almost to taunt them. Instead of arresting Jesus, they were arrested by what he was saying. And we see that more in verse 45. But I'm not going to look at that. Jesus said, it will only be a little while before your wish will be fulfilled. That's what he told them. They came to arrest him, and he said, it will only be a little while before your wish will be fulfilled. He means, in part, you only have a short time to make up your mind about me. After that, it will be too late for you. And after that day, you'll seek me. You will not find me. There's a prophetic element in that statement. Jesus is, I think, pointing to the fact to the day when Jerusalem would really need their Messiah, would really want their Messiah, but he would not be there. That day came, by the way, the year Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, which, by the way, was about 30-some, close to 30 years after Jesus died and was buried and rose again, and maybe about 20 to 30 years before John wrote this. So it had already happened when John wrote this gospel. But Jesus went on. In that day, he said, where I am, thither ye cannot come. Now, again, John's use of emphatic language tells you what he wants to make a point of. And in that statement, the I is emphatic, the you is emphatic. The not is an absolute negative. And this statement threw them all into another tizzy. What does he mean, where I am thither ye cannot come? Where does he think he can go? Where we, and by the way, that also is emphatic in the verse, where we cannot find him. They're offended, again, that he would suggest that he could ever hide from them. They are the ones who know. They are the experts. They could think of only one place where he might go and they wouldn't be able to find him. If he went to the diaspora, the, the dispersed Jews among the Gentiles, perhaps if he went to the Gentiles themselves, then he would not find them. They wouldn't find him there because they wouldn't find him there because they would never leave Israel. They were the Jerusalemites. They wouldn't be going to those slummy places like the Gentiles were. You can almost hear the scorn dripping from their voices as they say it. And this is the final irony because, in fact, Jesus did take the gospel to the Gentiles. He did. That's the point, in fact, of the book of Acts, which follows John immediately. Even before that, right before his death on the cross, we're told in John chapter 12 and verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
That almost as if that were the signal. That the Greeks seeking Jesus was the signal that now is the time for me to go to the cross. No doubt John included this exchange here because John, you remember, wrote his gospel for us, for you and me, for Gentiles, who would be coming to faith in Jesus Christ without the benefit of seeing eyewitnesses to his death and resurrection, and would be giving us, you and me, reason to believe. So here Jesus is speaking a prophetic word, and in fact, not just that. The irony is that his enemies speak a prophetic word as well about him pursuing the Gentiles. So there we have four ironies in the fire. Number one, he spoke boldly when the religious authorities were silent. They sought to kill him. He was not cowed. By speaking so boldly, Jesus caused many to question their authorities and caused them to consider whether he was, in fact, the Messiah. Then the second one, they thought they knew him, but they didn't. Of course, they could have known him. That was the point, in fact, of his teaching and preaching in his public ministry. Even in that moment, Jesus told them who he was. He wanted them to know him. Number three, despite the hostility, many believed on him and lost their shame of it and their fear of man. The oppressive bully tactics of their religious establishment backfired. And then number four, the unwitting people prophesied, the unwitting enemies of Jesus prophesied about the spread of the gospel. They meant it, of course, as a mock, almost as a taunt, and Jesus made it come true. So what can we take from all of this? What, what is in this for us? I've taken the time to explain the passage to you, but we all have a nature, a desire given to us by God in Christ, a desire to know the purpose of these things, the, the meaning of these things to us. How should this shape my life? What should I do? So let me give you a couple things. First of all, what a wonderful sense of humor God has. I mean, it, it is wonderful to me to see the way he points out how, really, this is what the Bible says, um, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. That was the problem all along, that their adversarial position towards Jesus was, in fact, a hostility towards themselves and not towards Jesus. God doesn't want you and me to be cowed by the world. He doesn't want us to tuck tail and run. He wants us to know that we're on the victory side, and he wants us to act like it, to live like it, not to be afraid of the faces of men. Secondly, what the world means for evil, God means for good. God means it for good. And you couldn't invent a better script for it than what we see in this passage. Everything the world throws at Christ turns to their own disadvantage. And that's how the story ends here as well. You know, the Bible and the, the Proverbs says that he that diggeth a pit will fall therein, mm -hmm. right? 
And we see that played out over and over. The traps that men lay for Jesus become snares to themselves. That's always how it is. And the grounds that men have for rejecting Jesus become, in fact, the grounds for their being rejected by Jesus. And let me tell you that in the last day, Jesus isn't doing like a friends and enemies list to say, you know, I was really popular. He's not really into a popularity contest at all. In the last day, the only thing that will be that, that will matter at all will not be whether or not you like Jesus, but whether or not Jesus says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, or says to you, depart from me, you cursed. If you reject Jesus and you die having rejected Jesus, you will have eternity to raise against him. You won't run out of time to rage against him and to be angry with him. But you will suffer eternal wrath and judgment for it. <clears throat> John wrote this gospel many years after Jesus was crucified, had risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven. The power of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was broken. Jerusalem was destroyed before John wrote this gospel. The name that they thought that they would destroy could not, cannot be destroyed. They destroyed themselves trying to destroy him. Because when they finally got what they wished for, when they finally crucified Jesus, as he hangs there on the cross, the Bible tells us that he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. It is the story of our redemption written large. And thirdly, every person here, every person, must repent of your resistance towards the Lord Jesus Christ. It is wicked, rebellious sin. We must turn from it. And I say this because you might be thinking, well, he's speaking metaphorically, like he's speaking only to the unsaved. No, because there are so many ways that Christians, followers of Christ, live a life of resistance and even rebellion towards Christ. When you think his lordship over you is a choice that you somehow granted to him that you can withdraw at your desire. He is lord when I say he is. When you think that way. When you live as if you are your own free agent without regard for him, except of course on Sundays, you are in rebellion against him. If your only thoughts of Christ come on Sunday morning, I'll say this, first of all, if you spend your whole week not thinking of Christ, you find it very difficult, I know that, you find it very difficult to think of him when you're in church. But if you live that way, without regard for him, neglecting him throughout the week, you are in rebellion against him. And not just